Hi, welcome back to the On The Brain podcast, where we showcase exciting research at the University of Calgary. Today, we talk about multiple sclerosis. Why is this devastating disease so prevalent in Canada? How much do we know about the cause? Find out as we speak to two students tackling this problem. Welcome to On The Brain podcast. My name is Tyler, I'll be the host for today. And today it's a pleasure to be joined by Emily, who is a student in Dr. Yong's lab at the University of Calgary. Welcome, Emily. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Great. So let's just jump in. So why is MS important to study? So MS is so important because, well, first of all, Canada has one of the highest rates in the world for MS. So it strikes really close to home, um, especially in Alberta and Western Canada has some of the highest rates. Um, also, compared to other neurodegenerative diseases, MS has onset really early on in life, so between 20 to 40 years of age, whereas um, other diseases are normally in your 70s or 80s. So it can really affect people's lives right when they're starting to get into their careers or um, you know, meet their partners and things like that. So it has a huge effect on people. Um, and also, as for you know, the clinical symptoms, they can be quite debilitating. Because MS involves, you know, your immune system attacking your brain um, and spinal cord, it leads to a bunch of symptoms such as um, affecting your motor abilities, loss of um, sensation in your limbs, it can affect your vision, um, and essentially just takes away all of your um, central nervous system functions. Mm -hmm. That sounds pretty devastating, especially for people so young. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So... How do people actually get MS? So that's what's really complicated about it, is we don't have a definite cause. Um, there are a bunch of different environmental and genetic factors that are associated with MS. Um, so some of the environmental factors could be vitamin D exposure, um, which we get from the sun. And that's one of the reasons why Canada has a higher rate of MS compared to other more southern countries, because as you go up in um, latitude, then um, you have lower vitamin D exposure and a higher risk of MS. So vitamin D is one. Um, there's also smoking, which is related um, to incidence of MS. There's also um, a sex component because more females get MS than men at about a rate of three to one. And yeah, as for genetics, there are a bunch of different immune genes, particularly that are related to MS. And so if you have a sibling or a parent with MS, you're more likely to get it. But as for a specific, you know, one cause or anything, we don't have anything identified as of yet. Okay. So you're talking about a whole bunch of risk factors, but we don't have the underlying cause of MS identified. Yeah, exactly. So what is MS? So MS happens when your immune system basically attacks the insulation which surrounds your brain cells, and that's called myelin. So as your immune cells go into um, your central nervous system, which makes up your brain and spinal cord, they attack this myelin, and that affects the ability of the brain to send its signals. So you can think of the brain cell as a highway, and when there is myelin surrounding it, the cars can move really fast, and they can get to their destinations um, on time and properly. But if the immune system is attacking this myelin, it's like a really congested road, and now all of the signals can't get to where they want to be, and that's why we get so many different symptoms of MS. So depending on where the immune system is attacking the myelin in the brain, it leads to different symptoms. 
So if it attacks in the visual area, then you lose your vision. If it affects in um, motor areas, then it affects your movement. Um, so that's why it's so, it's so different for different people and um, the disease can be very variable. Okay, and do we have any idea why it affects certain parts of your brain versus others? Um, not that I'm aware of. I know certain areas tend to be, um, you know, some of the warning signs. So vision, for some reason, is a, is a common symptom that people first report. Um, and it's unclear whether that's a very vulnerable area of the brain or whether that's just a symptom that causes people to go to the doctor more so than maybe tingling in your fingers would. Mm -hmm. um, but as for certain vulnerabilities of different areas, I'm not um, too sure about that. Okay, so what are you planning to focus, or what are you focusing on? Yeah, so as I said, the immune system is attacking the myelin that's surrounding your um, brain cells. So a lot of the current therapies that exist are working to affect the immune system so that they um, don't attack as strongly. But what I'm trying to do is actually create a therapeutic plan to promote remyelination, which is where the myelin that's been attacked is able to reform around the brain cells, and this would restore that proper conduction, which would be the highway. So if you're able to have remyelination, then you have um, the loss of symptoms is associated with that, and it can basically restore you to normal function. Um, but that's really not available so far. So as I said, all of the therapeutics are affecting the immune system, and so it's sort of a gap in the therapeutic options available right now. Okay. And so what therapeutics are you looking at using? Yeah, so my project is combining medication and exercise to see if they can have an additive effect. And so for the medication aspect, I'm looking at the effect of niacin, which is vitamin B3. And niacin's been used in other models of MS previously and also in models of brain tumor. And niacin's been shown to activate the beneficial areas of the immune system because the immune system, as I said, leads to injury in the first place, but the immune system is also required for repair to happen. So there's a very delicate balance that you need to strike, and niacin has been shown to activate the immune system in a good way in order to promote repair in those um, models I mentioned earlier. And so that's the one aspect. Um, I'm also going to look at exercise, and exercise has been shown to be uh, beneficial in you know, just for your general health in terms of, you know, cardiovascular, mental health, everything like that. Um, but it also has really strong effects in the brain. And that's been shown in animal models and in people with diseases like Parkinson's, MS, Alzheimer's, things like that. Um, so what I'm thinking is that the exercise can affect the environment of the brain. So the brain and spinal cord has an environment that is just not open to um, remyelination, which is when myelin comes back after the immune system attacks it. Um, so what we're hoping is that exercise can improve this environment by releasing a bunch of good molecules, and that good environment will be more open to the positive effects of niacin coming in. So that way, exercise and niacin will work together, and we're hoping that they'll have you know, more remyelination or you know, more of a positive effect than either therapy when administered on its own. And so that's why you know, the title of my project is called Mexercise, which is medicine plus exercise, and I'm hoping to combine those two therapeutic options. Great, so hopefully those two together will kind of restore the highway and, and unclog it, 
and allow the the nerves or the brain to communicate properly. Yeah, exactly. Great. And why have you decided to combine these two? Is there any other um, examples where medicine and exercise have worked together? Yeah, so it has been shown in other work by our lab in a different um, model of multiple sclerosis where they were able to combine um, exercise and uh, medication, a different medication, and they did show that there was increased remyelination in this um, combination group compared to either therapy on its own. Um, Unfortunately, that medication, when brought into clinical trial, made the patients just very drowsy and it wasn't well tolerated. So niacin has already been used in humans for um, disorders where there's too much fat in your blood, and it's been well tolerated and people have been um, fine using it. And it's also being used currently in a clinical trial for brain tumors, and it's well tolerated by patients, so we know that that won't be an issue. Great. Are patients with MS able to exercise regularly? Because that's half of Mm -hmm. the treatment. Yeah, exactly. So it would kind of make sense, as you said, that, you know, patients aren't able to exercise as well. Um, Like I said at the beginning, um, people with MS sometimes have um, issues with movement because if the immune system attacks the myelin in areas of your brain responsible for movement of your limbs, then you have reduced ability to do so. Um, There's also fatigue, which is a common symptom of of MS as well. And so the combination of that makes it quite difficult for people with MS to exercise once they're at a certain stage in the disease. So what I'm hoping to do as sort of the last part of my project is once I figure out if medication and exercise together have a beneficial effect, I'm going to look more at the mechanisms that underlie this benefit So if I can identify different factors or molecules that are um, responsible for this um, good effect in the brain, then you could potentially target those with um, medications. And then you could actually get the benefit of exercise in people with reduced motor ability. Okay. So obviously it would be great if these people could actually exercise all Mm -hmm. the time. But in this case, they can't. So you're trying to look at ways to sort of simulate exercise? Yeah, exactly. Because exercise is so good for you. Um, And there has been other research done for um, sort of copying the effects of exercise for disorders like diabetes or hypertension, more in um, that area. But not a lot of research has been done on the effects of the brain um, or of the effects of, you know, mimicking exercise in the brain. Um, Obviously, no drug could affect or could copy the entire, you know, effects of exercise, but we're hoping to be able to target specific pathways in the brain that could be helpful for people with MS. How intense would the exercise actually have to be to be helpful? Yeah, and that's a really good question because that's something that a lot of different groups are looking into because people with MS can sometimes engage in moderate exercise or things like yoga or tai chi that are a little bit less um, strenuous on your, you know, your muscles and things like that than um, aerobic exercise um, like running or biking. And so there's been a lot of people looking into how intense exercise does have to be and most of the research is showing that high intensity exercise is better. Um, which is also why it would be helpful to be able to mimic this, this strenuous exercise, which isn't really feasible for a lot of people with MS once their disease progresses. Mm-hmm. So is there anything that can cause remyelination to occur in humans right now? 
Unfortunately, no. All of the therapeutics that we have available right now are targeting the immune system and hoping to reduce that um, immune activity that leads to demyelination in the first place and, you know, the immune activity when they go in and attack the myelin. So all of the medications now are targeting that process and there isn't anything that can actually, you know, stop the progression of disease or allow for remyelination. Um, we do know actually that remyelination initially does occur in MS because that's sort of the body's natural response to injury is to repair itself. But what they've seen is that while remyelination occurs initially, it starts to decrease and become less functional with age and eventually fails completely. So if you're able to restore the body's natural process, then that can actually lead to you know, a huge improvement in the quality of life for people with MS. Is that what we think is happening with niacin? Is it kind of stimulating the body's natural repair response? Exactly. So like I said, niacin is affecting the immune system and it's promoting the good aspect of the immune system. And so when there is demyelination and the immune system is attacking your brain, after the demyelination occurs, all of the myelin is sitting around, um, you know, just like junk after a, after a car accident, right? It's just sitting around and this debris or this junk is preventing the body's natural repair processes. And so when niacin activates the immune system, these immune cells are able to go into this area and clear out the wreckage, and that allows for um, better repair or better remyelination. So should listeners be taking vitamin B3 in order to prevent getting MS? At this point, I wouldn't say that, you know, I'm confident enough to say that it would reduce your risk of getting MS. Um, it still is a vitamin, and we know that it hasn't been harmful when taken for other conditions, so it won't do you any harm. Um, as of now, it's being studied in clinical trials for brain tumor, and so we'll see if it's helpful there. But there hasn't been any work so far in, of niacin in the context of people with MS, so there isn't enough data to support you know, taking it to prevent your risk or to you know, take it after you're diagnosed with MS. It would be interesting to look at people who have been taking niacin regularly for um, the disorder I mentioned earlier, when there's too much fat in your blood. So it would be interesting to see if people who have been regularly taking niacin have a reduced risk of MS later in life. But so far, there's no data that I'm aware of that would support that. Um, but hopefully in a few years, I'll be able to change my answer and, and say that people definitely should be taking it. Great. Well, this has been very informative and very interesting. Thank you very much for coming on the show and best of luck with your research. Yeah, thank you so much for having me.